This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, a look at the powerful in at least three countries in Latin America. We'll have an in-depth interview concerning a new book about Venezuela's Hugo Chavez and an analysis of the recent elections in Guatemala and Nicaragua. And with the results of those elections, we go right away to Vanessa Jesus Gonzade, who has this week's roundup of news from around Latin America. In Guatemala, retired General Otto Pérez Molina was elected in Sunday's presidential runoff. Pérez Molina of the Patriotic Party won against Manuel Valdizón of the Democratic Freedom Revival Party 54 to 46%. Voters were drawn to Pérez Molina's iron fist approach to fight crime in a country overrun by gangs, drug cartels, and one of the highest murder rates in the world. The other big topic is going to be security and the strengthening of justice. From the first day after taking possession, we're going to see the integration of workforces. President Alvaro Colom sent the military to several parts of the country in the last six months to regain control from the drug gangs. Pérez Molina is the first former military leader elected president in Guatemala since the end of the brutal military rule 25 years ago. President Daniel Ortega was re-elected in Nicaragua on Sunday in the midst of a constitutional controversy and reports of voting problems. Ortega won with more than 60% of the votes, and media owner Fabio Gadea got a little more than 30%. Former President Arnoldo Aleman came in last with a mere 6%. A domestic group of observers called Let's Have Democracy reported 600 complaints of voting irregularities and 30 arrests during Sunday's election. Gadea, election observers, opposition groups, and the United States raised questions about the validity of the vote. A new law took effect Thursday in Cuba, allowing citizens to buy and sell real estate for the first time since the early days of the revolution. This new measure is part of a series of free market changes that Raul Castro has adopted since he came into power. The law applies to citizens and permanent residents and allows them to own one home in the city and one in the countryside. For decades, Cubans could only exchange property through complicated trade deals or black market deals because buying and selling was not allowed. According to the state's newspaper, Granma, from now on, the sales will only need the seal of a notary as opposed to the involvement of a state agency. A military attack killed commander of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. Alfonso Cano took over as the leader of the armed group, also known as FARC, after founder Manuel Marulanda was killed in 2008. Colombia's president, Juan Manuel Santos, says this is a message for members of the terrorist group to surrender. Cano had 12 convictions and more than 140 arrest warrants pending for crimes such as kidnapping, homicide, and rebellion. A Venezuelan baseball player was kidnapped at gunpoint by four men Wednesday night at his family's home in the city of Valencia. The Washington Nationals catcher had returned to Venezuela during the winter to play 10 games for his team, Los Tigres de Aragua. The vehicle in which he was taken was found, but the police are still looking for him. 
Bolivia and the United States restored diplomatic ties three years after the Evo Morales government expelled the U.S. ambassador. Bolivia's allegation was that the U.S. was inciting the opposition. The two nations signed an agreement in Washington, D.C. that seeks to mend relations and return ambassadors to their respective capitals. Washington continues to be without an ambassador in Venezuela, whose president Hugo Chavez is a close ally of Morales. I'm Vanessa Jesus Gonzari, reporting for Latin Pulse. Thanks, Vanessa. And now this week's first in-depth analysis looking back at the presidential elections in Guatemala and Nicaragua. As we heard, President Ortega of the FSLN, or Sandinistas, won re-election in Nicaragua, and former General Perez Molina of the far-right Patriotic Party will become Guatemala's next president. Joining us to discuss these elections is Maureen Meyer, a senior associate at the Washington office on Latin America, sometimes called WOLA. Ms. Meyer joins us this week via Skype. Welcome to Latin Pulse. Thanks, Rick. I feel like these elections have put me in a time warp back to the 1980s. Sandinistas in power in Nicaragua and a former general about to take power in Guatemala. But more importantly, what's your reaction? Well, actually, I think that that does say something about even political transition or, or how healthy democracy is in Central America, that you do have these repeated figures from the past continually appearing in, in current politics. Um, I think, though, in terms of these elections, there are a few things to distinguish of what's different about the elections in Guatemala or what, what has happened in Nicaragua and what can we see or predict for the future of both countries. Um, in the case of Nicaragua, obviously, uh, Daniel Ortega's victory is uh, second term for him in, in the last years. Obviously, he was ruling the country previously, but the second term, consecutive term in, the, in power under questionable circumstances regarding the legality of his possibility to be re-elected given constitutional prohibitions originally on re-election or particularly consecutive re-elections and not only in only being able to serve two terms. And in the case of Guatemala, I think it's slightly different and Perez Molina's election certainly represents a focus on what are Guatemalans concerned about. And I think the overarching concern for Guatemalans, particularly in the urban areas where Perez Molina got a lot of support, is violence and insecurity. And his campaign promise of uh, mano dura, so iron fist policies, were attractive enough to a population that is very, feeling very insecure and very willing to entertain policies that promise a crackdown on criminals in order to look at security in their country. Let's focus then on Guatemala first and then and then Nicaragua. Since you brought up Manoduro, uh, doesn't this policy uh, affect how civil liberties are dealt with and isn't that a continuing concern in Guatemala or do you have a different view? No, certainly. And I think that the overarching concern with Manoduro strategies in general is they've been tried in the past. Um, even El Salvador and the previous governments had had a Manoduro and super Manoduro policies to look at gang violence and it didn't work in the country. So one is the question of the, the massive use of force, or particularly in, in Guatemala's case, the increased use of the military in security. What impact will that have, even in terms of security itself? And secondly, obviously, what you said about human rights concerns or civil liberty concerns. Um, there's certainly a, a troubling past in, in Guatemala, as you're aware of, the use of the military in insurgency and during the internal conflict that has a very sordid 
passed in terms of human rights violations in that time period. So I think that's an added concern here. And then obviously the issue of the use of the armed forces, particularly instead of strengthening the civilian police. And I think that's a big pending issue for Perez Molina to address is if you are going to use more of the military, he already said it this week, you, the idea of using caiviles, which are Guatemalan special forces, also implicated in serious human rights violations during the internal conflict. If you're going to be using the military more and more, what is your plan to also strengthen the police? And that we, we still have not seen. Pedro's Molina has a background with special forces and with the intelligence service in, in the country. And intelligence service for many years, even after in, in we've moved from a military government in Guatemala to civilian governments uh, since the 90s. But even during that period, intelligence service problems with human rights have continued. Is, is this a marker for WOLA or for other groups concerned about human rights? Certainly, um, yes. I think what, what this means for human rights in the country is you know, up for grabs, um, particularly in terms of what will happen with the current Attorney General. Um, Claudia Pasipas, who's the, the recently appointed Attorney General, technically has a five-year term, so she has four more years to serve as Attorney General in Guatemala. Claudia has made a lot of steps to prosecute cases of human rights violations by the military in, during the internal conflict period. She's been making progress on organized crime cases and other kind of politically heated um, investigations. And so the big question uh, is, will Perez Molina allow her, for example, to continue with her term and actually start increasing the number of prosecutions and efforts to combat impunity for past abuses and also looking at more current issues regarding organized crime and otherwise in the country? Does she have ties to the Cologne administration or is she viewed as independent? She's viewed as widely independent. Obviously, Gloria has a human rights background or background working on um, penal issues, criminal issues, um, very legal oriented. Her appointment was actually very interesting because Colom originally wanted to name and did name another person as Attorney General who was then, in a sense, sanctioned by the international community and particularly International um, Commission to Combat Impunity, the CCIG in Guatemala, expressing concerns about this person's candidacy because of pretty blatant links to organized crime. So Colombo subsequently withheld or withdrew his um, candidacy or nomination, confirmation, and Claudia was in the end um, appointed. But I think she is viewed as being fairly impartial. And I think that the question is, will she stay in office? And if she is, will she have the freedom and the autonomy to actually continue with the good work she's doing in prosecuting cases? Anything else that we should be concerned about regarding Guatemala before we move on to Nicaragua here? Obviously, the security is a one overarching concern in Guatemala, but I think it's also important to look at what will Perez Molina do in terms of um, addressing economic concerns in the country. Guatemala has a huge debt right now um, and is a very incapable right now of collecting taxes. I think that fiscal reform is certainly pressing in the country, but also just how to address the massive poverty in Guatemala, which affects over 70% of the population, and where you have you know, these high rates of homicides every day, but also a pretty concerning number of people that die from malnutrition in the country. So I think the, the other aspect of what, beyond the security side of things, how will Perez Molina reach out and do more on economic development or addressing poverty in the country, and with what funding? So those are other certainly challenges in, in Guatemala. Then let's move back to Nicaragua and Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas. You mentioned the issue of the constitutionality of his 
re-election. Some people have predicted that because now he will be in total control, um, the presidency, the courts, and the Congress there in Nicaragua, that, that there'll be a rewrite of the Constitution. Is this something you predict, or do you see something else? That's something that we certainly view as a possibility, particularly because if you look at what you mentioned, his the questionable constitutionality of his election, it was a lot due to the fact that Ortega or the Sandinistas couldn't get passed in the, the National Assembly reform to the Constitution that would allow for re-election, so changing the Constitution. So Ortega's kind of solution was, well, I will appeal to a Supreme Court or the branch of the Supreme Court to, as a violation of my own individual rights, that I shouldn't, I should be allowed to be re-elected. And the way the court was made up that day, it was particularly FSLN supporters, and then made this resolution that the Constitution itself was unconstitutional. I think that move was more because he couldn't pass things in the National Assembly. And the blockages we saw in terms of naming officials, including officials of the Supreme Court or the Election Council, which led to a decree to kind of continue the people that were in office, were also because there wasn't uh, any capacity to reach a consensus in the National Assembly. Now the FSLN has approximately 60 seats. I think there's still some disputes there about how many in the Assembly of 92 seats, which gives them absolute majority. So I think the question is, what types of reforms to the Constitution will they try to put forward and other legislation that may further what we've seen as a consolidation of power in the executive branch in, in Nicaragua. We've had some people on this program who have predicted that Ortega will actually soften his politics in this second term, that, that he'll reach out and be concerned about coalition building. Of course, there are others who fear that he will follow more of a Venezuelan model, uh, a model that Hugo Chavez has has put forward in in Latin America, and and because Chavez and Ortega at least have good relations, that 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 might be predictive. It, do you have any predictions for us, or or any concerns along either of those lines? Well, I think the, the interesting thing about Ortega is if you look at coalition building, there's obviously the what is considered the famous pact of the facto between Daniel Ortega and Arul Alemán, which former president, going back to 1999, which is almost a, uh, an agreement between the Sandinistas and the Liberal Party to share power, in a sense, or share control over the National Assembly, the courts, kind of all the different political systems, as a way to ensure, in a sense, immunity for, for both figures and also the, the continued control over decisions in Nicaragua. So Ortega reaching out to opposition has happened in the past more when it's convenient for him. I think in terms of the, the pacto itself, um, Arnaldo Alemán was obviously a presidential candidate this time around, didn't get very many, um, I think he got about 9% of the votes. And, and the question now is that the Sandinistas do have such power in the assembly, et cetera, will they feel the need to reach out even to their crony party from before the liberals to reach agreements, or do they have even right now the majority to do pretty much anything they want without looking for consensus? Obviously, this also presents a challenge for the rest of the opposition in Nicaragua, including lots of members of the Sandinista renovation movement, the other fragments of the liberal parties of how they could actually increase uh, a more viable opposition in Nicaragua that could be a better counterforce to Ortega and the Sandinistas. Do you or Wola have any concerns about the quality of democracy in Nicaragua? Certainly, I think our, our concerns are how, given um, these elections, there's certainly been lots of concerns about fraud, irregularities, the way the, the Supreme Electoral Council um, has been composed, 
to the members now, will they be able to impartially decide or resolve any electoral um, disputes? The reports that are coming out from the European Union, the Carter Center, others that have had a presence there looking at the elections had a lot of concerns about the way the elections took place, technical issues, but also in terms of lack of access from opposition party members to observe in certain voting areas. So I think there are concerns about these elections in terms of transparency and what the how much was Ortega's real majority in winning and the Sandinistas in general. And then what steps will Ortega and the party take in the next five years to what we would hope increase the independence of the Supreme Court or the Electoral Council. But the concern of what that may not take place given the trends that we've seen in the past past year or two. Well, Maureen Meyer, I guess we're going to have to wait and see. Maureen Meyer of WOLA, the Washington Office on Latin America, joining us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Rick. My pleasure. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. And now, as promised, our pre-recorded interview with Andre Serbin of CRIES a network of 70 non-governmental organizations and research centers in Latin America and the Caribbean, which is based in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Serbin is retired from his position at Venezuela's Central University, and he's a former advisor to several Venezuelan governments. With that insight, Serbin has authored a new book on Hugo Chavez. Here are excerpts from our interview during Serbin's last visit to Washington, D.C. Please uh, give us your take uh, from your book about the situation with, with Hugo Chavez and Venezuela. Is he as much a threat to the United States as he's portrayed in the media here? No, I don't think uh, that he's a real threat to, to, to the United States as such. Um, you, you, we, we have to start with the fact that even with all the rhetoric about an anti-U.S. position of Chavez, the reality is that still most of the Venezuelan oil is sold to the U.S. market. So uh, the Venezuelan economy is extremely dependent of the U.S. So eventually you can say whatever you want to say, but you have to sell your oil to the United States. There was an attempt to sell the oil to China, and it didn't work out, mostly because it's a very heavy oil, uh, needs a special kind of refinery, and the second factor, which is very important, the transportation cost is very high. Actually, recently on this program, we have been discussing the Chinese relationship mm -hmm. with with Venezuela. So you're saying that relationship doesn't have much of a future? Well, uh, there is a sort of political relation that is very important in terms of the view of Chavez of a multipolar world, where China is an important actor. But in terms of the economic relationship, uh, it's... It's not, not so important as the main market for the Venezuelan oil, which is the United States. Chavez has al also reached out to the Iranians, um, to Muammar Gaddafi when he ran Libya. Well, to Russia. Uh, he, he 
he has a, a huge amount of farms, both in, in Russia and Belarusia. Uh, but that, that, that's part of, of, of this uh, Pinterest, I would say, personality of Chavez also, trying to diversify its, uh, the, relations, the relations of Venezuela all over the world. But in fact, the, when we come to the real question of where the oil is sold, again, the oil is sold to the United States. So I guess what you're saying to me is actions speak louder than words. Absolutely. And, and, and there are many words that are <laughs> said by Chavez, but not necessarily they correlate with the reality. It's an interesting way to sell your oil, to insult your customer. Well, I, I don't know if the customer do, doesn't feel insulted and still keeps <laughs> paying for the oil. It's okay. <laughs> so characterize for me how you see Chavez and the United States and their relationship now. You're painting me sort of a farcical picture. Well, I would say that Chavez will continue to use uh, the United States as the scapegoat uh, to uh, legitimize his attempts to create a sort of uh, Latin American community of nations, which is anti-hegemonic, anti-imperialistic, anti-US. But uh, the reality is that uh, that depends also of the international prices of oil and of the capacity of producing producing oil in Venezuela. And this capacity is diminished, diminished by two factors. One, the mismanagement of the industry as such. And secondly, because there are no investments for the development of the industry as such. So uh, if the uh, Chavez benefited from very high international oil prices for the last uh, 10 years, so uh, if you take into account that the oil, the, the oil prices are going down, this can affect seriously any attempt of having some sort of project beyond the frontiers, the borders of Venezuela. I guess what you're telling me that really the politics of Venezuela haven't really changed. They've, they've been oil politics for decades, have they not? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, there is a continuity in terms of uh, the uh, oil diplomacy in Venezuela. There was an oil diplomacy during the last government of Carlos Andres Perez, the second government, before the crisis started in Venezuela. And there is still an oil diplomacy, perhaps a little bit magnified, uh, and with some ideological elements that are different from Carlos Andres Perez, of course, but it's still a, an oil diplomacy that it's used for the interests of Venezuela on a regional level. So the title of your book is Chavez, the Reconfiguration of Latin America. Does he have a chance to reconfigure Latin America? Uh, I, th I think that uh, his chances are diminishing, uh, being reduced by the situation in the country. First of all, the opposition uh, had uh, very substantial support in the last two elections, one for a referendum, a change in the constitution, and the second one in the elections for the, the National Assembly, uh, where even if the opposition got more than 50%, because of the redistribution of the districts, electoral di districts, uh, Chavez got much more uh, representatives at the Congress, at the Assembly. But in fact, uh, he feels that the, the opposition is growing and everything depends of the capacity of the opposition of putting their act together. 
and that 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 that's a key question because uh, of course there are different forces in the opposition, and if they fragment the opposition movement, it's going to be very difficult to win the next presidential presidential elections, uh, and 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 to uh, take Chavez out of office. Chavez has something else to beat before he gets to the elections, though. What about his problem with his health and cancer? Well, I think this is diminishing his capacity of uh, being uh, the key personality, the unique personality in terms of uh, Venezuelan politics and to lead the process of the re-election. Everything depends on how is going to evolve his uh, illness. And nobody knows exactly what the cancer is about. He has a cancer, everybody knows that, but nobody knows what kind of cancer. So he had four uh, treatments uh, in the last uh, two months, uh, three of them, or four of them in, in Cuba. But uh, if you see uh, the results, uh, it seems to be very ill. Many people in, in many countries would say if a president was running with a potentially terminal illness, that that would doom his chances at the polls. Yes, but the problem is that Chavez has no successes. <laughs> that, that's that's a serious problem for the Partido Socialista Unificado Unido de Venezuela. That Chavez's party. They, yeah, Chavez's party, that they don't have uh, somebody who can replace Chavez. Chavez again, is the only person who is in charge of everything. And that's part of the mismanagement of the country because every, every decision should be submitted to Chavez before uh, being implemented. So, I, Isn't this the, the micromanaged Castro model just moved to Venezuela? Because he uses the Castro as his, as his uh, role he model. He uses Castro as a reference, and the Cuban model was very important, particularly for Venezuelan foreign policies, for the foreign policy. But I think those are two very different processes. In the case of Cuba, it is a process where there are some levels of decisions below uh, the Castro, and uh, that that means that uh, there are a capacity. For example, if you take uh, the 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 Minister of Foreign Affairs, they can make some decisions. They can start some talks, even if the final approval should come from the political elite, being it uh, the, the armed forces or the Communist Party. But uh, there are other levels of decisions. In Venezuela, everything is around Chavez. Let me go back to the issue of successors, then, because yeah. of what you just yeah. said. Some people would argue that a Chavez needed to come along, whether it was Hugo Chavez or someone else like this, to combat the oligarchic nature of how Venezuelan politics was. But now that he's been in office for as long as he has, doesn't that, isn't that a critique about whether he is a true Democrat or if he's a, really an autocrat? I, I, let me say, first of all, that uh, from a formal point of view, democracy is still working in Venezuela. We're going to elections. We have elections. We can, you can, uh, eventually you can criticize the, criticize the way that the elections are run. But in fact, we have elections. And Chavez is reelected with a huge support generally from the population. And that has to do with this previous history and the 
uh, accusation of the previous uh, political elite of mismanaging the country and uh, being very corrupt. But when you now see out what is happening in Venezuela, the picture is worse than in the previous years to Chavez. Well, what you have is a formal process of the elections, but then at the same time you have an increasing concentration of power in the hands of Chavez and a disinstitutionalization of, of the country as such because most of the institutions that even were created with the new constitution in 1998-99 are institutions that had been captured by Chavez, are not working for the citizens as such. They're working for Chavez. With that, thank you very much, Andres Serbin. Thank you. The author of Chavez and the Reconfiguration of Latin America, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you very much. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. And to see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud. Or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse.gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, dot gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Vanessa Jesus Gonzati and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros, gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2011, Las Rocas Productions.